Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. You've been hearing the wit and wisdom of Harry Shearer for the past four decades. Since 1983, Shearer has hosted and produced a weekly hour-long radio program, Le Show, that mixes news reports, interviews, and music that can be equal parts referential and comedic. You've also enjoyed Shearer's contributions to the monumental documentary, This is Spinal Tap, as Derek Smalls. And of course, you've absorbed so many funny lines from his vocal work on The Simpsons where he won an Emmy for his work as Mr. Burns, Smithers, Ned Flanders, Principal Skinner, and Kent Brockman. He's also been Grammy-nominated for multiple albums, and he wrote and directed multiple documentaries about New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Shearer joined me over Skype from his home in New Orleans to talk about all of that, his younger days in the credibility gap with Michael McKeon and David Lander, and his youngest days as a child actor working alongside legends Jack Benny and Mel Blanc. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Let's just stop for a second to acknowledge two things. One, congratulations to you on what is it now, 70 years in show business? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty so. amazing. Yeah. And uh in those seven years it's gone from uh being on the radio with Jack Benny to uh doing interviews over Skype. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite remarkable that we can we have this ease of technology and are able to communicate this way and broadcast. What is your what is your current setup that you use when you're recording the show? Uh, well, it's it's pretty traditional radio. Um, I mean, I have a studio in my house. Uh, I don't originate live from there. I, I record either the whole show or uh, segments for the show in the studio. If I'm in New Orleans where I can originate live, I then take that material uh, in the only form that you can. Uh, this should come as news to Apple and its fanboys. The only way, even in 2021, that you can bring outside material to be aired on a radio station, which is a CD, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is why I still have a, a a laptop with a built-in CD recorder and player, uh, even though Apple considers pro laptops at this point to not need CD players and uh, recorders that's my little that's my little hit at apple right now so <laughs> i got that in um but that's how i do it um if i record the whole show um when i'm in los angeles and i have to do that then i send it to the originating station in new orleans via uh ftp and don't ask me what the initials stand for it's some <laughs> kind of protocol right uh, and they air it from there does it feel more comfortable or different when you're recording from home rather than in the studio? Absolutely. Absolutely. I try. Uh, first of all, it's at a different time of day. It's on a different day. Uh, but if you know you can stop and start, you stop and start. 
if you know you can't stop and start, you don't. <laughs> so you get a, a different momentum, a different flow, uh, a different energy level. It's unavoidable. I, you know, I, I try my best to uh, make it sound relatively the same, but you know, I feel the difference absolutely. When did you start putting the show online for people to, for lack of a better word, podcast it? Yeah, well, it it uh, it was one of the first shows to be put online for, as a podcast. Uh, I remember there was there was a week very early on when I was the number one podcast. That shows you how long ago it was. <laughs> uh, we'll get there again. We'll get there again. Yeah, right. Um, so it's it's pretty much when when podcasting began, like around two thousand two thousand one, something like that. What was it like in those early days when you virtually had it? all to yourself i mean <laughs> it's it's all conceptual you don't experience anything you know um uh the only the only experiential thing which i don't have to deal with is that uh i play some music on my show and when it's uh translated into podcast terms the music has to be edited in some way because there's some regulation Right. All sorts of licensing issues come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, politics aside, I'm curious what you thought of Paul Harvey as a broadcaster. Huh. Well, he was uh, one of the great influences on me, uh, basically just as a a um, performer on radio. I mean, I disagreed pretty much with everything he said, except um and this is this is a historical footnote. Um, most people, if you ask them and had any answer at all, uh, what s spurred the turn in American public opinion against the Vietnam War would say Walter Cronkite. But in fact, uh, an earlier turn uh, on the same subject was uh, experienced by Paul Harvey when his son became draft age. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, I had the I had actually had the privilege of sitting in one on one of his radio broadcasts. Uh, I, I wangled my way in, and uh, you know he was famous for among other things his pauses. Um, I mean I th I should explain to people who'd never heard him that um, yes I disagreed with the content of what he said most of the time. But I was in awe of his style and practice uh, and approach to talking on the radio. And it was very much to my ear uh, a musical approach. He had a, an incredibly uh, musical voice and way of talking. He did that off the air as well as on the air. And um, the pauses were like, you know, when a jazz musician, I think it was Miles, said uh, it's the notes I don't play that count. Uh, and so I experienced that in the studio with him, and I realized that the pauses were nothing more than him looking from one page to another to see which thing he wanted to read next. <laughs> and it just turned into a style. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah, when listening to the show, I could definitely hear the influence. And as a, I'm a newspaper reporter by trade, and I've been podcasting for since 2015. So I'm mm. still 
I'm still relatively young in this game in terms mm-hmm. of learning how to speak for an audio audience. And, mm-hmm. and listening reminded me I don't need to speak quite so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, you know, the, Radio began uh, as a medium where in uh, AM radio, AM means amplitude, um, amplitude modulation. I was trying to show off and it didn't work. Um, (laughs) And that meant that the louder the content, the the, uh, stronger the signal. And that's where the uh, dread of dead air came from quote dead air meaning silence right so there's always been this um kind of spookery about silence and radio that you know it was it was poison and paul harvey was i think the first person to realize that didn't the technical reason for it didn't apply anymore and therefore it could be uh defied with the impunity you know, they say uh, one of the, one of the many classic cliches they say is uh, "Don't meet your heroes," mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm not referring to Paul Harvey, but it struck me as quite remarkable that as a kid, you met and worked with Jack Benny, Mel Blanc, and Abbott and Costello, mm-hmm. and as a seven, eight, nine year old, were they your heroes, or did you know what you were getting yourself into at, at that early age? Oh, I knew I was I was a huge fan of uh, radio and television as a kid. Uh, uh, the best evidence of that is that uh, a friend of my father's had a home phonograph record set up. You could he could actually cut long playing records uh, as a hobby. And so he would interview his friends, children and things like that. So there's an LP of him interviewing me asking me what my favorite radio shows were and I'm I telling him what shows they were, what network they were on, what night they originated, <laughs> what city they originated in and at the age of 3. So I knew the world. I I very much knew the world I was walking into. Uh, Benny was probably the closest uh I had to a, a hero um although I would never have described it that way. Um But, um, you know, I was aware and an uh, appreciator of his work uh, by the time I walked into that world, uh, as well as Abbott and Costello. And I forget the other one you mentioned. Oh, Mel Blanc. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Mel Blanc was was uh, somebody whose work was part of, you know, the best library of cartoons ever before The Simpsons. um, (laughs) So, yeah, you would have to be considered kind of like a modern day Mel Blanc with all of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 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 totally ironic. Uh, it It's way too glib and, and convenient to have actually happened. But they did. You know, I mean, if you look at this, the life I've had in uh, in a long enough lens as well, he started with Mel Blanc and then he ended up being Mel Blanc. Um, <laughs> but. You know, it's it's fourteen hundred different coincidences conspired to make that uh, come about. I guess one of those major coincidences was 
after you took a break in your teen years to go to school and think about being a teacher and other occupations, when you fell into the credibility gap and met Michael McKeon. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of those happenstance things, right? That just, you don't know that you, when you meet this person, you're going to end up working with them for the next 50 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, it was first David, David L. Lander, uh, who just passed away recently, um, who then said, I have this friend McKean that brought him into the group. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I it's it's a stupid series of coincidences because I was basically draft dodging, teaching school and to uh, have some link to uh, what I really do. I had started doing radio commercials for this uh, nightclub rock emporium movie palace called kaleidoscope in hollywood and i i I was a friend of mine was a friend of theirs that's what connected us and i would use their uh their room their theater room as a studio brought in a tape machine and did these commercials and uh because we didn't have enough money to buy time on the number one station in town we bought that rock and roll station in town we bought commercials on the number two rock and roll station <laughs> and they were stuck because they were number two and were desperate to do something to get better ratings. They started this comedic news program called the credibility gap, which I then got involved in. And then, then that, so it goes from there. When the credibility gap first started on the radio, there wasn't really a rich tradition of satirical news, right? Oh my God. No. Oh my God. It, we were, we were sort of, uh, um, I mean, there was probably, uh, that was the week that was, I think, predated us. And that was a television series that, uh, basically was brought over from Britain. Uh, it had come out of the, um, beyond the fringe school of, of satirical comedy that was based at Cambridge university and then went to the British stage. And out of that came this TV series called That Was the Week That Was. David Frost was in it, if you remember David Frost. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And, and uh, it got brought to the States and was on for a couple of seasons. And uh, that was our ro- only real predecessor, I think. Right, because you were on the radio for at least a year before the National Lampoon started. Oh, more than that. Yeah, we started in 68. <laughs> What would you and the rest of the credibility gap uh, think of Le Show? Uh, linear Descendant, you know. I mean, I had I had started doing a a different radio show when we were still doing the 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 news program with the Gap, which was just played music and did comedy sketches that had nothing to do with the news, and so uh, it it just seemed natural uh, that. I absorbed the news part of uh, the Gap show when when that went off the air. You know, looking at your story, you you don't have kind of the traditional comedian background where you're working in the comedy clubs or you're yeah. you're with the Second City, yeah, or the committee up in San Francisco as some of Thank your you peers for might have been. Thank you for mentioning them. They were the ones that I really adored. Um, no. Um, the gap was was different in that we 
even when we started doing uh, in-person shows, we did a lot of them, uh, we wrote our material. Uh, we were not an improv group. We, uh, I think it's, it's okay to say at this point that, first of all, uh, the gigging situation was sort of different. You'd get booked for a week into a club. So you had a week-long gig. And uh, it became our practice, even though we were performing written material. And we would write material and put it on stage the same night. Um, but Thursdays of the week, um, we would um, break our normal practice. We would get high before the show and give ourselves the freedom to see what else was in that sketch or those sketches. Mm. So that was the night when we would improvise our way through a, a pre-written sketch and discover, hey, that's a good, we'll, we'll put that in. We'll, we'll leave that in. That's a good one. Um, but yeah, it's very different. Um, I, the, the idea of um, being alone in a club. I mean, I, I had a friend at the time who... Uh, sort of had a nervous breakdown from that experience, Albert Brooks. Um, you know, it just was like you're touring by yourself. Uh, you're alone on the stage. You're alone in the hotel room. It's just. Yeah. Right. It's <laughs> for uh, so to speak, it's real life is uh, <laughs> real life is tough. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> uh, where did were you in one of those uh, smoking sessions when you when you came up with Derek Smalls or? Uh, well, um, came up with the guy before I came up with his name because okay. we did uh, we did a song on a pilot uh, that Rob Reiner and I, uh, Rob executive produced it and I produced it, uh, which was a pilot for a show on ABC. And which was called the TV show. And we just did parodies of everything that was on television. And uh, there was at the time a show on Friday nights on NBC called Midnight Special, where mm. a uh, disc jockey who called himself <laughs> Wolfman Jack uh, hosted. And so uh, for our parody, Rob played Wolfman Jack because he didn't play an instrument. Mm -hmm. and Chris, Michael and I were the, were the players in the band, along with uh, um, Loudon Wainwright. And Russ Kunkel. Um, so I got a look for the guy and uh, played him. But then as uh, days and weeks went on, we thought, we should do more with those guys. Uh, and started thinking about maybe doing a movie. And so that's when I came up with the name. How, how much musical background and training did you have before that? Way too much. <laughs> Way too much. Um, seven years of uh, seven or eight years of uh, training as a classical pianist with a teacher whose every other student was actually training to become a classical pianist. So she was all her other students were uh, practicing for eight hours a day. And she was lucky if she got one out of me. Oh, that's right. It was it was, after all, uh, your your first piano teacher who got you in show business to begin, to begin mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but now you've been, you've been portraying Derek Smalls uh, in failed TV pilots in uh, legendary mockumentaries, motion pictures, and in concert around the world mm -hmm. for more than 40 years mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. 
is it is it more comfortable for you now to be Derek Smalls than it is to be Harry Shearer? No, but it's it's <laughs> close. I mean, you're right. I've played that character more than any other, uh, and uh, it's you know I think we found the three of us found uh, that we had a real comfort zone with these characters when we started doing publicity for the movie, uh, pretty much in England. And, uh, we would held these, you know, press things. And from the minute we walked out to the minute we walked out, uh, we were all in character and it just became, you know, uh, which, which was a dare, I guess, to some of the journalists. There was, uh, one time in London where uh, I believe he was with the Times of London, a uh, guy yelled out to uh, uh, Chris, hey, Nigel, how's Jamie Lee? Uh, and uh, you have never seen anything colder than, <laughs> than Chris's stare <laughs> when he heard that. Uh, so we just we just found it incredibly easy to to be in those characters and and so i have uh i found that to be true of going on uh as derek as a solo person right because when i think about your career you know i'm turning 50 so i'm old enough to know your varied characters and in, in, mm. in landmarks along the way but people younger than me probably only think of you in association with the Simpsons. And yet, yeah. and yet both Derek Smalls and the show predate that and, and are still a major part of your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never been in a position personally where I had to worry about who was watching or listening and how many of them were there. So I spend almost literally no time, thinking about that, you know, as opposed to most people in show business who are, you know, looking at the ratings and looking at the box office and all of that. Uh, I've, I've, in that sense, I've lived a charmed life. Do you have any advice for other entertainers who, who do get out of show for- business? <laughs> get the fuck out of show business. In, in, ter- in terms of that particular affliction, though, of obsessing over ratings or reviews or, mm-hmm. Or Twitter replies or YouTube comments. How do you how do you disabuse yourself of that if that's all you know? Well, I mean, it's 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 first of all, it is a blessing. I in normal show business, you have to you have to care about that stuff because it decides whether you work or not, uh, which you which one can't help caring about. Um, and I mean, I, I, uh, I'm aware that I get a remarkably small amount of feedback, uh, because I don't make it all that easy, uh, to feedback to me on the radio show. And, you know, there are times when I wish I had more, but I'm fine with it. Uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't change anything whether I had more or less feedback. Um, so it's just, you know, I was able to get by on a fairly remarkably low level of income for quite a long time until I became stupidly rich. <laughs> uh, 
but you know so i didn't have to have uh i didn't have to hew to a, a certain style that was popular at the moment or whatever in order to make gobs of money because i didn't need gobs of money i had found a, a home at the beach uh that was very cheap and it was so i thought well i have the thing that people work 20 years or you know very hard and, and to, trying to be able to afford and i already have it so that, that was probably a, a great help since you don't have to worry about that do you have any added perspective since you are involved i have in too so much fucking perspective too much fucking perspective. <laughs> right so but since you are still involved with social media like the rest of us are what is your perspective on watching how other performers and creative types deal with it? Well, I don't uh, follow a lot of other performers. I use uh, I, I'm only on Twitter and uh, I mainly follow journalists and uh, writers and people from whom I can possibly learn something or <laughs> glean some glean, I think is a better word. And uh, so. I don't think I follow. I don't think I follow anybody else. Uh, Not even Michael. Not even that McKean fellow. Uh, <laughs> do I, I? Oh, I can't. I followed Michael. <laughs> yeah. I think you're obligated to as a. I think as, so. I think it's as, as a business as a business associate. Yeah. Um, speaking of business associates, I I had a brief association with Rob Barnett over at My Damn Channel. Uh huh. And he he tells me that you were instrumental in giving him some early advice. Really? As part of the deal of having you contribute videos for his. Does he remember what the advice was? I I believe he said that if you're gonna go with a name like my damn channel, <laughs> don't then extend that branding to everything like my damn coffee mug and my damn t-shirt. And... Yeah, I I wasn't a fan of the name. I, you know, as someone who just, as a journalist, was just slightly affiliated with him, I, I was curious about that as well. I always wonder when people name their shows or their networks with a profanity in it, how much they're losing by by using profanity. Um, they get the shock value and the attention, but then they're also losing audience. In, in yeah, I, 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 I mean... My overarching uh, view of this stuff is based on uh, one of the most successful channels in uh, television history. Uh, and, and it led me to the conclusion that the names of things, we, we spent too much time obsessing about the names of things anyway. So, I mean, I said I didn't like the name, but then I said this, you know. What do the initials ESPN stand for? Uh, sports Programming Network. The Entertainment, e and Entertainment. Sports and Sports Programming Network. You can't come up with a clunkier title for your <laughs> network than that. And yet the initials became household words. So it's more about the product than, than about the name. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that kind of what you thought when you came up with Le Show? No, um, I had, uh, with, with uh, a certain amount of uh, subversive uh, balls, 
originally called it the Voice of America. Um, but <laughs> that was uh, somehow kiboshed at some point in the uh, in the show's history. And I was searching around for another name. And um, for a while, I called it the Hour of Power. But the because there was a, an evangelist who had a show by that name, and I have always wanted to be sued by an evangelist. <laughs> but uh, I was in the 80s. Uh, there was a trend that just made me laugh all the time, which was the trend to put the word le in front of everything to class it up. Uh, French it I, up. Yeah. And I used to take photographs of as many of these things, or businesses as I could, so I had in succession, Le Club, La Hot Club, and La Hot Tub Club. <laughs> and so a friend of mine, when I was searching for the next name for the sh for the program, suggested Le Show, and I said, yeah, that's as good as any. <laughs> well, uh, I have to say, uh, The Big Uneasy is a great title for your documentary. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it happens to, in, it, uh, to quote, the only thing the only thing I ever quote Henry Kissinger is saying this is something he said to uh, President Nixon. It has the added advantage of being true. Uh, <laughs> and the, the big uneasy, in fact, was, you know, that was the state of New Orleans and uh, to a certain extent still is because we're still enjoying the protection, air quotes, of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. How how are things there? Uh 16 years after Katrina, but only a month or so after Ida. Yeah. Well, two entirely different phenomena. Ida was basically about wind. Um, and uh, Katrina was basically about water, uh, specifically the water that the defective engineering of the hurricane protection system unleashed upon New Orleans. Uh, uh, I was unscathed personally by Katrina um, because I lived in uh, what's known colloquially down there as the sliver by the river, which is if you're within a mile of the river, the Corps of Engineers did not build any hurricane protection structures, so nothing failed near us. Um, Ida, we had a little damage, uh, and uh, so I'm waiting to go back until it's fixed, but It'll be a couple of weeks. Um, the the dirty little secret. I have a, a friend who is a whistleblower inside the Corps of Engineers. She was in the movie, um, and we maintain contact. Um, incredibly strong, courageous person, and uh, she uh, was involved in the installation of the new system, the new improved system. And uh, so it was through her that I learned that, you know, there were three walls that failed in the main body of New Orleans and they line canals and the canals are were built for the purpose of draining rainwater from New Orleans, letting it drain into the lake that is adjacent, Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, and those walls failed when the water came in from the lake during Katrina. So the Corps goes okay, we're going to build a new system. And they, they prop back up the parts of the walls that failed, but we're not going to have to fix the structural problems with those walls because we're putting gates in. So if there's a hurricane, there'll be gates 
down to prevent the lake water from coming into the canals. That's great. That worked this time. But if there's heavy rainfall during a hurricane, the, the, our pumps, the city's pumps, will do their job draining the city of rainwater. Where does the rainwater go? Into those canals. And it can't then drain into the lake because the gates are closed and the walls were never fixed. Hmm. That's why it's still a big uneasy. So I have to sorry wonder. for the lecture. Sorry for the lecture. No, I have to I have to wonder, you know, as a satirist, as an independent journalist slash documentarian slash broadcaster. Is there one that's more effective than the other in terms of changing public policy or public opinion? Or is yeah. it only through a mockumentary such as Final Death? I don't think I don't think to- I don't think people in my business can change anything. I think we fool ourselves to think that, you know, it, it, it would be nice. It would be uh, good for the ego if uh, there was, you know, something that we uh, actually I don't I can't think of an example of it. I mean, I in terms of documentaries, I remember I think it was 2008. There was a document won the Academy Award called The Cove. Maybe it was later than that. It was about the a slaughter of. Uh, I think dolphins in a in a cove in Japan, mm-hmm. and it had a call to action at the end of the documentary. I, w- I remember being told. If you're doing a documentary, you have to have a call to action. <laughs> and I remember that the you could read up on it that two, three years later, the slaughter was just as bad in that area of Japan as it was before the cove came out. You can win an Academy fucking award. You can't stop the slaughter in one cove. Right. And, and like uh, people on social media like to point out, the Simpsons can often predict the future, but it can't stop the future. Yeah, yeah. All of all of the predictions on The Simpsons come true, but they're not supposed to because they're all supposed to be so ridiculous. Yeah, they're supposed to be dis, dis, uh, dystopian. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I I try not to keep my guests too long, but I also know that I somehow didn't ask you hardly any questions about The Simpsons and and nothing about that Saturday night program that mm-hmm. that's on TV still for some reason. Um, I can tell you the reason. (laughs) Seriously. Okay. It's the only show on American television that has never had competition on either of the other two major networks. Ever. You get a Monopoly slot, you can stay on forever. It's even better than Johnny Carson had it, because at least sometimes people... Johnny Carson is the only reason that show exists in the first place. Right, because he gave up Saturdays. Well, yes. In a, in a contract negotiation. Yeah. Right. And the network had that slot cleared by the local stations so they could put something else in there. The other two networks never had a late night slot on Saturday. The local stations made too much money with their late late show movies. They were never going to give up that time. Uh, do you think The Simpsons will ever give up its time slot or is it just going to keep going uh, well, I, I had been I, at one time I had taken to saying that the Simpsons will stay on the air until uh, Fox finds another eight o'clock hit. Uh, <laughs> and I'll stick with that. 
<laughs> right, because as we've learned, uh, even just in 2021, we have the technology to capture all the th- all of the words you've already said and reconfigure them. So, so even after you're gone, they can still use your voice. Don't don't give them ideas like that. <laughs> um, but they've they've had a remarkably bad uh, history of getting an eight o'clock hit. Right. You know. Uh, and eight o'clock hits open is, is, you know, how the night opens for TV networks. So they're highly prized. Well, well, Harry Shearer, I just want to say uh, thank you for thank you for sitting and chatting with me. Um, thank you. Thank you for uh, putting helping to put the words Oakley Doakley into my head <laughs> and into my text messaging. And uh, even despite your experience with that Saturday night program on NBC, you somehow managed to to be part of two of my all-time favorite sketches, the thank synchronized you. swimming in 60 minutes. You, no, thank you. It's nothing nothing tops those things. So thanks. It, uh, 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 hearing you say that is my pleasure. Trying to get those done was not. <laughs> well, that you got it done is a testament to your uh, to your genius and your persistence. So thank you for that as well. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.